This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, Palm Sunday, April 9th, 2017, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Well, good morning. Glad you're here. If you have your Bibles, if you'd open Genesis chapter 46, that's where we're going to be today. If you don't have a Bible, it's not going to be on the screen, but we have Bibles out there, Bibles in the back. Just grab a coffee and grab a Bible area to take it with you. You'll hopefully read it again. According to the church calendar, the historic church calendar, today would be considered Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, historically, is the day that Christians commemorate when Jesus uh, came into Jerusalem on a donkey and they declared Him as the one who came in the name of David, the son of David, king, basically. And within a few days after that, He would be arrested and then within 24 hours or so, crucified, which we will celebrate the Passover this Friday, uh, the same meal that He would have celebrated with His disciples. And then three days later, Jesus rose from the dead and everything changed. The world changed. My life changed. The lives of the disciples changed. They went from scaredy cat disciples hiding in the shadows to men who would die for the truth that Jesus rose from the dead. Resurrection. Resurrection changes everything. It takes that which is dead and makes it alive. Resurrection gives new freedom from the past. It gives courage in the present. It gives a new hope for what is yet to come. And as we've spent time in the story of Jacob's family, but particularly the story of one of his sons, Joseph, he's experiencing resurrection. Jacob, having heard his son is still alive, is experiencing a moment of what he thought was dead is now alive. He's resurrected. And that news of his son being alive brings immediate relief, literal relief from their pain, but also future salvation that he doesn't even fully realize yet. But this moment of deliverance that they have from this famine, this moment of joy that they have, uh, is just the continuation of a much longer journey that began with Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. So we've been going through this story of Genesis, which is 50 chapters long. It takes us a long time to get, but it's the story of really a man and his family whom God chooses to have relationship with. And I would ask you, I know your finger's in Genesis 46, if you turn back to Genesis 15, just briefly I want to remind you of that larger story. Because my job is not just to come and tell you, hey, here are the five ways to be a better person, whatever. It's to say, this is what the story of God is, and this is our part in that story that's been going on for a very long time that's really not about us, it's about Him. But in Genesis 15, when God actually spoke to Abraham for the second time, it is perhaps one of the most important chapters in the Bible. Genesis 15 is the record of where God makes a very deliberate and intentional when He repeats promise of salvation. And it also is the chapter that includes Abraham's response of faith. That famous phrase that we should be reminded of 
often that he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. Faith is what saves. But it also records this ceremony where God makes an agreement. He binds himself in this covenant with him where he cuts these animals. It's a blood covenant. And in the most amazing way, God basically says, look, I'm going to commit to dying if I don't keep my side of the bargain. But Abraham's never asked to walk through, and so he basically tells Abraham as well, I'm also committing to dying if you don't keep or uphold your side of the agreement. Which gives us an incredible picture of the Gospel. But that's not all God tells Abraham. If you look at verse 13, and I will put this one on the screen just because I think it's important. Well, they're all important, but that it come out right. But I want you to listen to what Abraham is told. And this is likely maybe several hundred years, several generations before Genesis 46, where Jacob is going back with his family to Egypt. Abram's in the land of Canaan, and he says this, Know for certain, Abram, as he makes this agreement, I'm promising to make you a huge family, a great nation. I'm going to bless the world. I'm going to give you this land. But know for certain that your offspring, your future kids and grandkids, will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. Imagine Abraham hearing this. I'm going to bless you, by the way. Your family's going to go back and suffer for 400 years. Continues, but I'll bring judgment on that nation and they that they serve. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity or the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now that verse right there, we could have big sermon on, but we're not going to. All that to say, Abraham is told some very scary things about his future family. So as Jacob starts going down Egypt, we understand that the journey down into Egypt is not the end of the story or the fulfillment of God's promises, even though his people look like they're saved momentarily. What we see by that verse is that God planned His people's deliverance by the hand of Egypt. They are being saved by Egypt right now. And God is going to plan and has planned for His people's future affliction in that same place. And, as He says in Genesis 15, God has planned for their final redemption from that place. And what we see is that God's story has these ups and downs. And our life with God, our, our, our faith walk, our journey, however you want to describe it, our life with God is <clears throat> not one of steady, unwavering, ever more prosperous stages of growth that result in earthly glory. Newsflash, that is not the Christian life. But it's interesting when it doesn't work out that way, we're disappointed, we're surprised, we're frustrated. We have this, I become a Christian, it's just like mountain to glory every day of my life. 
right? <clears throat> On the contrary, our life with God, let's just be honest, it's an arduous journey of faith. And it grows deeper and richer and stronger through earthly struggle. But it results in eternal glory that's beyond compare. Let's look at Genesis 46 and see how this works out in the life of Jacob. I'm just going to read the first few verses. I'll read it in three chunks. Chapter 46 of Genesis, as they go down to Egypt, says, So Israel, which is Jacob's name given by God, Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba, and he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here am I. And then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation, and I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Now the first thing we we learn in, in chapter 46 is the kind of journey that we're actually on, that Jacob's on and that we're on in our faith. See, we take lots of journeys in our lives, lots of trips, lots of experiences, each with their own purpose. And the success of a particular journey is usually determined by whether or not the purpose we set out for was fulfilled. That's a successful one. It is fulfilled. It's unsuccessful. It remains unfulfilled. And we do all kinds of things just to make it a little more tangible, like you know, climbing a mountain, engaging in a wrestling match, or, or planting a garden, right? Success is pretty, pretty easy to determine whether we have achieved what we set out to do. We either summit the mountain or we don't. We either win the wrestling match or we don't. We either plant a garden and feast in it or we don't. But a successful, like successful journey with God is not necessarily measured by these kinds of tangible outcomes. As much as we try to maybe measure our success. See, with God, it's not always about what you achieve. It actually is what you come to believe. What you come to believe. And believe, dare I say, ever more deeper and stronger. Now seemingly for Jacob, God has blown open the door of salvation for Jacob and his family, and he responds to Joseph's invitation to come on down to Egypt by packing up his whole family and going south, but then he stops. He stops at this place called Beersheba, which would be where his grandfather Abraham had years ago planted a tamarisk tree kind of signaling that he was going to settle down. This was going to be his home. This is in a very uh, tangible way that the southernmost kind of part of what is considered the promised land, the last stop before exiting the land where God had said, I will make you a people and I will give you this land. So he's just on the border. And even though God seems to be in this, right? 
Joseph talked about God. This is what God has done. This is what God has made me. This is what God, God, God. God still has yet to confirm that with Jacob, but gosh, it seems like everything's fallen into place. You ever had that experience? Gosh, it just seems like God is in this, but Jacob is still fearful. Understandably fearful for lots of reasons. Number one, he's 130 years old. Okay? So making a big move at 130 is scary for anybody, right? I'm going to move my whole family up. I'm going to just uproot everything I've ever known, take everything, and go. Sounds a lot like Abraham's first call. Not to mention he's going into a pagan country for which his family has a very colorful history with and not very good colors. Not to mention, I'm certain he knows of the prophecy that I read in the beginning. That's probably been talked about in the family for years. He's going down to a place where he is told that your family is going to serve for the next 400 years. I think he may have some reason to be scared. May have some reason to be, may have some reason to pause and go, Lord, are you actually in this thing? Because this is scary. We're, we're, we're leaving starvation, right? He, he's, he's been pressed in pain. He's in famine. Like he's between starvation and what looks like salvation. And when you're starving, lots of things look like salvation. And that's kind of the, the weakness of, of, I think, our faith. We get so desperate to be saved from something that we'll grab almost anything to save us. So Jacob is scared. He's fearful. But how does he deal with his fear? He prays. He sacrifices to God. He worships God. He stops. And while we might be tempted to go, oh, why are you so scared? God's clearly in this. I think I have a lot of respect for a man who can stop everything. Stop his entire family from moving to make sure God's in it. And he worships, and by God's grace, he responds. Jacob's fears about the future are alleviated by hearing God's word. God speaks to him. He speaks to him with intimacy. He he says his name, and it's not often that actually God does this least in the Old Testament. He does it a number of times, but not a lot considering how many people there are. But he says, Jacob. Jacob. And he he speaks to him with authority. Right? What's the first thing? He's, here am I, God. I'm God. Like, that's the first thing he says. Just in case you're wondering, I'm God. Comma. Let's pause on that for a second. And then he continues. And he says, I'm the God of your father. Right? He's like, there's some history here. And then he says, with certainty, don't be afraid. Now, you notice that God doesn't say, there's nothing to be afraid about. He says, don't be afraid, implying A, that Jacob is scared, and B, I think maybe giving him some permission to say, yeah, there's some scary things that you may, may be understandably scared about. 
But he says, don't be afraid, and here's why you shouldn't be afraid. I will make you into a great nation. I will go down with you to Egypt. I will bring you up again. What a powerful, powerful statement by the Lord. But even as powerful as it is, you need to ask yourself, what does God not say in that? What I mean, He doesn't tell Jacob, don't worry, everything will be easy peasy. He doesn't lay out, oh, let me, Jacob, don't worry. Let me tell you all the bennies of living in Egypt, why it's going to be so awesome. Right? Doesn't say that. He doesn't even reveal to him how, like, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bring you back. Okay, how's it going to happen? All he says is, just trust me. And that's pretty much how God works throughout the entire book of Genesis. Abraham, I want you to go over there. Yeah, how's that going to Just trust me. Jacob, I want you to do this, but how is that going to work out exactly? Trust me. We don't like, trust me. We like, sure. I'll trust you when you lay out every detail of how this is going to work. Then, may, like, You realize that's not the place of faith. The place of faith is to say, okay, I, I clearly see the direction I'm supposed to go. I don't know how this is going to work out. But I'm going to step. God doesn't provide much of a timeline of how these things are going to work out, though Jacob I'm sure has 400 years in his mind. He, he basically invites Jacob to trust his word and journey with him, even though he knows it will be scary. That is the power of God's word. Our lives are to be shaped and directed and restrained by God's Word. And as we journey through this thing called life, we are not to react to what is an ever-changing world, but we are to rely on God's unchanging Word. And when things are difficult, when we're apt to fear, when we're uncertain about the future, we are supposed to seek God's face. We are to find comfort in what He has done, what He promises to do, and what He is committed to already doing. The Word of God guides us, it informs us, it corrects us, it encourages us, it equips us. Through His Word, what we find is, is if you actually read the Bible, if you read stories like this, and I don't mean just the instructive letters of the New Testament, but stories of how God is related to His people, what we see time and time again is that God calls His people to walk and walk with Him on paths that are very unfamiliar, that are usually uncertain, that are quite uncomfortable, and they're almost always unpopular. Ones that stretch us. God isn't interested in our comfort. He certainly wants us to experience blessing that will blow our mind but not our comfort. He is interested in changing us, in transforming us, in stretching us in different ways. And we walk by faith in what God says, not what we see. Because if we walk according to what we see, we won't do anything or we'll run the other direction. 
See, the journey of faith is between what I like. These, there's always two ditches on the side of the road. I talk about this a lot. One is the ditch of rationality that requires absolutely no faith because it works out perfectly on a piece of paper. This is clearly why I should be doing this, obviously. The other is what we'll just call recklessness, where we go, you know what? I know God is going to provide, so I'm going to go buy this thing that I can't afford in any way, shape, or form, but the Lord's going to show up. I know it. Where you just kind of recklessly go, I'm just going to let go and let God, and you end up falling flat on your face because you really didn't think through it at all. You didn't use any of the wisdom God gave you. But there's this in-between place where things make sense a little bit, and yet, man, God's going to have to show up in these spots, and that's the place of faith. That's the tension of faith where I believe God calls us to walk, where, where the path is clear enough, but yet daunting enough. Clear enough to see, but daunting enough to know that you can't rely on yourself to make it come to pass. That is called dependence in a faith, a walk of faith, trusting in God's Word. The journey is about faith. It's about building our faith, building our trust, building our dependence upon God. And that's what God does in meeting Jacob. And guess what? For Jacob, that's enough. I don't need to know everything. You're with me. You're going. You're bringing me back. Let's do this. I can do anything if I know God's going with me. I can do anything if I know God's gone ahead of me. I can do anything if God promises to bring me out of it. Let's continue in verse 5. I'm going to read a big chunk of names, so prepare yourself for butchering them. All right, verse 5 says this, Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and they came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt. Jacob and his sons. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn. The sons of Reuben, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Koheth, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Yab, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, Jehel. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padanaram, together with his daughter Dinah, altogether his sons and his daughters numbered 33. Very specific. The sons of Gad, Zephion, Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Erodai, Erolai. The sons of Asher, Imna, Izva, Ishvi, Beriah, with Sarah the sister, and the sons of Beriah, Heber, and Melchiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob sixteen persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, of whom Eseneth, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Bekar, Asbel, Gera, Naaman, Ahai, Rosh, Muppin, Huppin, Muppin and Huppin, interesting, and Ard. It's just Lord of the Rings. <laughs> These are the sons of Rachel, are born to Jacob, 14 persons all, and the sons of Dan, 
Husham, the sons of Naphtali, Jezreel, Guni, Jezer, and Shalem. These are the sons of Bila, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all, and the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. And all the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Woo! <laughs> say them fast, say them quick. That's the key. Now, there's a lot to learn. Like, you look at that and you're like, yeah, let's move on to something more important. There's a lot to learn there. And God put it there on purpose. What we learn about in the first part, the kind of journey on is a journey of faith, but this is how the journey unfolds, the kind of way it unfolds. See, we have certain expectations about how our life with God is going to unfold, even when we have confirmation that we're moving forward. We expect the journey to be fast. We expect immediate obedience to produce immediate fruit. When things don't work according to our timeline, we think God's slow or unhelpful. We expect our journey with God to be primarily about us. At least that's what it seems because we talk so much about my calling, my passions, my giftings, my role, my place in God's mission. That's what I commonly hear. And we also expect our journey to be full of certainty. Everything is going to be predictable. Everything is going to be clear. It's all going to make sense to me. In truth, we're usually more interested in getting to a particular place we believe that God wants us to be rather than growing closer to God through the process of getting there. Now, suffice to say, the way of the journey is very different than we think. And I think this list of numbers and names helps us to do that. Just so you understand, the collection of names and numbers is basically representative of four different wives that Jacob had. It breaks it down pretty clearly in there. He had two wives who were sisters, Leah and Rachel. He loved Rachel. He got tricked into marrying Leah first. And when they, at different times, were barren, they each gave each other their servants to him. So like this baby competition ensued. From that came all of these sons, which represent the 12 tribes of Israel that you so often hear reference to in the Old Testament. Now, each of these sons obviously have their own families, but the entire number of family members that is represented here is 66. And that says that it doesn't include the wives. So Jacob brought 66 men and their sons, not including the wives, and then the addition of himself, as well as Joseph and his two sons, there were 70 people being represented in Egypt. Not all 70, there's more than 70, but the representative number. And 70 is a really important number in Scripture, actually. It's the combination of two significant numbers, 7 and 10. And typically 7 is the number that represents divine completion, 7 days and those types of things. And the number 10 is typically represents the number of divine perfection, 10 commandments and other things. So you put those two together, 70 represents this ordered plan that is brought to full and perfect completion, at least up to this point. 
So his entire family moving down here, all these things that are bringing him to this point, this is God's perfect, it couldn't have gone any better. Now, sidebar, we imagine all the time how our lives could have been better or different. And I want to tell you my deepest conviction, though it's very hard to hold for those who have suffered greatly. I believe that the way the plan life unfolds is the best way in every way. That it couldn't have gone better. And I believe that's how what is being said here because if you think of all the brokenness that came or, or caused even this moment to happen, you're like, man, we could have done this a little bit better, right? This could have, what if we would have done, you know how prideful that is? How prideful it is to imagine like, Lord, you don't know what you're doing. Or how unbiblical it is to believe that God isn't in control. There's a number of pieces there. But to believe that it's unfolding exactly as it's supposed to through all of the yuck, I believe that's what's being communicated here. But in seeing that, in seeing this, this mass of people go down, we learn a couple things. Okay, Number one, in terms of how this plan of life goes about, I've already said this, that we see that God moves slow, but He moves. Now, mind you, it's probably been close to a couple hundred years since Abraham was first spoken to. So first spoken to had no kids. He was first made promises that he made to a great nation, that he would have a land and, and all these things would happen, right? The first time. At that time, he was childless, and it took about 25 years later before he had his first son named Isaac. Now, at this point, he had been told this. It's not as if his sons and daughters, his Grandsons and granddaughters number the sands on the seashore or the stars in heaven. But he is certainly much larger than he was. 400 years from now, at the beginning of the book of Exodus, when they're delivered by God out of Egypt, they will number upwards of 600,000 people. And we will see the promise fulfilled. But that takes 400 years. God moves slow. But He moves! He moves slow, but He moves. I, I think of the church plants that I have helped to lead, including this one. Guess what? They always started with a dozen people in a living room. And things rarely moved as fast as we had hoped. But they always moved. And last week as we had that members meeting, I considered a joy to cast vision for some big things. And big things are really easy to get excited about. But as we dream, which is a great thing to do, we also must remain faithful to the Lord. Especially when it's not easy to be joyful because the things that we dreamed of don't come to pass in the time we want them to. I like Eugene Peterson, pastor, preacher, writer. He has a title of a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And that is the kind of journey I hope as a church and as individuals we have. 
We don't measure it by how fast or how big or how grand things got. That would be awesome, but if they don't, can we just have faithful obedience in a long version of that in the same direction and be okay? Pushing towards faithfulness. If we could just have a church full of faithful men and women, faithful husbands and wives, faithful moms and dads, and then let God do what He's going to do beyond that, fantastic. But let's worry about being faithful. God moves slow and He does so intentionally. And we need to be okay with His pace. Not run too far behind Him, but definitely not run ahead. But we also learned something else, that, that God calls individuals. He did call particularly Jacob, calls him Israel, but He uses families. He doesn't just take Jacob down there. He takes his whole family. And, and we have to remember, this family is really messed up. This family, if you've paid attention over the last few chapters, it was full of favoritism and division and conflict all the way back to Jacob and his own marriages. Ugly. More than once, you had individuals in this family pursue their own personal profit often at the expense of another family member. From the very beginning, however, God had been committed to the family of Abraham, the family of Isaac, the family of Jacob. He was not simply saving for Himself a person, but a people. And by the grace of God, through the suffering of Joseph, the family has been unified again. The family is working together to move down to Egypt. They are no longer complaining or comparing or competing for what they want. They are cooperating together though they have great differences and they have history of brokenness between each other. And again, as, as, as we think about dreaming as a church and what we want to do as a church, I, I hope you understand that the fullness of our mission cannot be realized unless every single person is playing their part. And what that means is that we have to believe that the promises of God are not just for me or for you, they're for us. That God designed His church to be a family. That He uses that language intentionally. That we are unable, catch this, we are unable to fully obey the Lord without one another. To fulfill His mission, we have to be together. We cannot do it alone. We must grow together if we're actually going to go and do anything together. And doing that, guess what that's going to require? That's going to require us denying some of our personal preferences and work with those who are very different than us. Even those who disagree with us. The reality is the thing that binds us together as a people, the things that binds us together as Restoration Road Church is not the fact that we would you know, we all love the same things and dress the same and think the same. It's that we have a shared identity in Jesus Christ. It's that we all understand that we are messed up sinners saved by grace. And we come together and we go, wow, look what God is and who God has brought into this place to do something for Him. And we, may, we need to see every family member, young and old, gifted or not, talented or not, as valuable and more than that, an indispensable part of the body without which we are less. And until you see that, until see you see yourself 
as an indispensable part of the body or you see everyone else as an indispensable part of the body, we will be hindered in our movement together. He doesn't just call individuals, he calls families. And the last thing I see in the second section here, and I've said this before, that God often gives directions, but he doesn't always give full destinations. Right, the family has a direction they're supposed to walk, but there's no genuine clarity on how this is going to work out. He's made the place and path very clear. He's made it clear that he's going to be with them. He's made it clear that they're going to be together and that they're going to return together. The journey of faith is a communal one, but it's a communal one that is on mission. We're not just called to be together. Hey, we're family. We're actually called to accomplish something together. And again, I I see this unfolding the next few months within our church as our leaders make plans. We trust that God is going to establish our steps. And I'll just be real with you, we don't have all the details. But we have the most important ones. But we're not going to allow the fear of uncertainty paralyze us from action. We're going to worship God and like Jacob, we're going to walk as we do. Let's read the last part of this chapter. It says this in verse 28. He'd sent Judah ahead of them to Joseph to show the way before him to Goshen. They came into the land of Goshen. And then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. And he presented to him himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me, and the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You will say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Last part here. We've we've seen the the kind of journey we're on. It's one that, that is of faith. We see the way it unfolds, and my argument is it unfolds together in a particular way, in a particular mission, but we also see that there is a great cost We should spend our time counting both the costs and blessings of walking with the Lord because every journey includes both. But we have a tendency to only count one or the other. See, if you only count the costs, if you only ask yourself how much this is going to cost, how uncomfortable and painful this will be, the kind of sacrifices that it's going to require, you'll never move. You'll get scared away. You'll get paralyzed by the overwhelming picture of what it's going to require of you. On the same note, if you only count the blessings, if you only go, this is how amazing it's going to be, what what joy it's going to bring, if you only count that as you go and things don't unfold the way you so joyfully expected, you'll be disillusioned. You'll be frustrated and you may walk away from it altogether. We must 
measure the blessings and the costs as we go. And so as you look at Jacob, you see the blessings are pretty clear. They have relief from the famine. There is this reputation of Joseph that they're now going to be blessed being connected with because he's a family member. But the greatest thing you see is this reunion with Joseph and Jacob, right? This kind of closure to this moment where they say, oh, dad, son, the favorite son and the loving dad are brought together and it says he weeps for a good while on his neck. The Bible is really clear. Obedience does result in blessing. Following God does produce joy. It does lead to life. But let's be real and honest that obedience has its costs. When Jacob arrives, his father, or he gives his father instructions, he's like, look, here's what you need to do when you're in Egypt. He says, I need you guys to identify as shepherds so that you can live in the land of Goshen. Goshen is a land we find them living in as you open the book of Exodus. It was the district where all the Hebrews had settled. It was considered the land of Ramses, the, the great land. It was cattle land. That's where the, the Pharaoh kept his cattle. And shepherds, what they actually were, they were shepherds of the fields. And Joseph wants them in a very real way to live in this pagan world, but not become like the world. There's a separation a bit of separation. You're going to live in this land because they could certainly live in the, in the capital of Egypt. They could live probably where Joseph himself lived. But he doesn't want you. He says, I want you guys to stay over here in the best of the land, but a little outside of the center of this pagan country. He says, I want you to identify as shepherds which would have its costs. See, the Egyptians were agriculturalists, which means they're farmers. They despised shepherds. They despised shepherds because sheep and goats meant death to their crops. And so Egyptians considered both shepherds worthless and even sheep worthless. They didn't think sheep were good for eating. They weren't good for sacrifice. They were good for nothing. In fact, Egyptian art forms, if you were to go look historically, they portray shepherds very negatively as the lowest of classes. And so Jacob says, I want you to identify with that which is an abomination in the land of Egypt. I want you to be an abomination in this land. That's pretty costly. Considering they're going to live there for hundreds of years, they're going to be considered abominations. Now, as I bring this to a close, let me just give some context. First of all, in our Facebook, smartphone, Amazon, Starbucks, working on my laptop world. It's probably hard to imagine what it's like to be a shepherd. Right? And there's not too many people getting degrees in shepherding, I don't think, anymore. Not too many kids like, you know what, Dad, I just want to be a shepherd. I, I don't, maybe that's happening. Maybe a kid said that. And even if we don't view being a shepherd as despicable, it is very unfamiliar to us. I remember when I was a little kid and churches would have their uh, harvest carnivals, which maybe we'll end up having one someday, but I'm going to totally make fun of it, but that's okay. Because it seems like 
All the parents were really scared that they're going to worship Satan on Halloween, and so they wanted to make sure they had some alternative so they didn't freak out. And so I remember going to one of these, and it was a costume party, and they're like, yeah, dress up as biblical characters. And I'm like, I really like my demon mask, but they're like, that's satanic, so don't wear that. I'm like, okay. I still don't understand. Like, I'd show up at these Bible character plays, and there's like medieval knights and stuff. I'm like, where's that in the Bible? That isn't like, whatever. But it wasn't a demon mask, so you're okay. I didn't see any shepherds there. Minus one. Right here. I didn't know what I wanted to be because I had like some weird, ugly mask. Mom's like, you can't wear that church. I'm like, okay. So I put a bag over my head with holes in it and said, the unknown shepherd. I thought it was pretty creative, actually. But being a shepherd, like if you just think of like Christmas plays and stuff, there aren't too many people saying, I want to be the shepherd, Right? Because being the shepherd is like akin to being the extra in the movie with zero lines and there's just like, you're nothing. You're just there to fill space. Sorry for all of you who are shepherds and you're like, I was the best shepherd. <laughs> but in, in many, in, in the land of Egypt and in, in our world, a shepherd's really nothing. And in the time of Jesus, guess what? Shepherds were still the pariahs of society. They held the lowest of social statuses. They were shunned by the rich, shunned by the famous, especially the religious. They were perpetually considered ceremonial unclean because they dealt with animals and all other stuff that goes with that. They couldn't keep the rules and the regulations of the Pharisees, so they were considered just outcasts. Unholy, dirty, always. They even went so far as because they were so ceremonial unclean, they wouldn't even uh, accept their their uh, testimony in court. And yet, the shepherds on the night our Savior was born are the first ones whom the angels tell about the birth of Jesus. They are the first ones to preach the birth of Jesus. And that is because I believe shepherds represent the outcasts and the sinners that Jesus actually came for. More than that, Jesus Himself the Bible says, became nothing for us. He identified with us, and that is why we identify with Him. Did you know Jesus in John 10 said, I am the good shepherd. If you think about what shepherds meant at that point, though He's speaking metaphorically, He's also identifying Himself with something that's nasty in society. Abominable. But He says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down His life for His sheep. As we consider the cost, cost of walking with God, I want you to know that there is, there is tremendous blessing, immeasurable blessing, but there in this life is a great cost. There's a cost to obedience. There is a cost to faithfulness. There is a cost to identifying with the true biblical Jesus. And when you do, you lose nothing with God. In fact, you gain everything. But you lose a heck of a lot with the world. Is it any wonder that Jesus warned us? First saying, look, if you love me, you're going to obey me. But if you obey me, because you love me, the world's going to hate you. Even go, he even goes so far to say, look, if everyone likes you, you should be worried. Paul, in his last letter, 
A man who knows he's going to die tells his pastor Timothy, look, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's a cost. So the question is simply this, as we consider the kind of journey that, that we're on, we consider the fact that we're going together, but that there's a cost to it. We are sojourners, the Bible tells us, and we are in our form of Egypt. How will we spend our time in Egypt? Will we obey Jesus even though it is incredibly unpopular to do so? Will we invest in Jesus' people though it's very uncomfortable? It is uncomfortable to be known. It is uncomfortable to be committed. Is it uncomfortable to say, yeah, that's my family. Oh, man, that's messy. Yep, well, not that. Family. Will you follow Jesus' direction and lead even though the destination is kind of uncertain? But he says, I'll be there and I'll go with you. See, the king is coming to take us home. The king who was born, the king who died, and the king who rose again and ascended to heaven is coming again to take us home. And the question is, will we identify with Jesus even when it is abominable to do so. And it seems like the church culture, the evangelical of the world, is trying to make Jesus more palpable, trying to make faith in Jesus and Christianity more easy so it'll be less offensive. Jesus told you that if you truly obey him and worship him, you're going to offend. We're not trying to offend, but you're going to offend and you will be considered abominable and going, oh, you believe that? That's kind of outdated, archaic. Will you identify with Jesus? The table that we come to willingly. No one forces you to come to this table. This is the most tangible expression of our faith on a Sunday morning. We receive the word. We, we sing songs of praise. But this is where we actively make a confession. This is where we identify with the man whom we've identified with, the one that the world has rejected. He was rejected that I might be accepted. He was punished that I might be forgiven. He died so that I might live. And I come having confessed belief in Jesus who died the death for me and rose to give me new life. This is where we come. This is the table where together we confess Jesus as our Savior, which seems to be pretty easy, and our Lord, which is a little bit harder. We don't just give Him our hearts. right? We come to this table and say, You're, my heart is yours, as dark as it is. Like, you, you want it, and you cleanse it, and you make it great, but we also give Him our lives. That's why there's something tangible to do here. He is Lord of all that we have and all that we are. And so we offer our hearts spiritually, we offer our lives materially, we offer our tithes and offerings as we fulfill His mission together. And then, having done that, we sing. And we offer our voices, confessing our faith together. And guess what? Sometimes, one of the most comforting things to me as I'm struggling my faith is to hear everyone else sing. And so we're, we're preaching. We're preaching the truth of Jesus. 
We're confessing the truth of Jesus, and we're doing it together. We're living out the journey of faith together, and I pray you'll join us in doing that. Let's pray.